uh, for one another as well as we write down these quests. Um, but now we're going to transition um, into our teaching time where we're continuing in our series that we're calling God's Purpose, Our Purpose, where we're looking at all of these purpose statements of Jesus, these times in which Jesus declared to the world and made it very clear what he came to do, why he came. Um, because between Christmas and the cross, Jesus did a lot, right? And sometimes it can be easy for us to latch on to just one or two things that we like about Jesus, but we want to get a good, comprehensive, clear picture of who he truly is. And today, uh, last week we were in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 ended really rough, just with everybody being mad and wanting to kill Jesus. John chapter 9, this is one of the best stories in like the entire Bible. I really think it is. This is one of my favorite stories, really complete story. But we are in John chapter 9 today because we are looking at this statement that Jesus said, where Jesus said, I have come into this world for judgment. He said, for judgment, I have come into the world. And this is something that right off the bat, we're going to think like, wait, this is going to be like something I don't really like that much. But as you're going to see, Jesus, if you didn't know, Jesus came to judge the world. And do you know what his judgment of the world was, or specifically in John chapter 9 here is? But the world is blind. In fact, all of us are blind. And so his comment here that for I have come for judgment is actually an encouragement. And that's one of the reasons we're going to look at the entire story here. Because Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Because Jesus is offering this promise that his judgment is going to result in the blind receiving their sight. They will be able to see something they didn't see before. Um, because this, this is a theme that's all throughout, especially the Gospel of John and all throughout the scriptures that we've just been talking about seeing Jesus rightly. Um, growing up, there was a church in my hometown that, that had this big mural on the building there. I don't know if you're very good at these, like, you know, ink splotch pictures. I've always been terrible at them. So I grew up for 20-something years driving by this church, and it's a picture of Jesus there. You have, like, a zoomed-in version. There's a picture of Jesus, and I literally was never able to see it. I see Jesus maybe like diving after a fish. I could see that, but I could never actually see the image that was supposed to be there. And there were many times when I was especially like driving by this church with a whole car full of my friends who don't believe in Jesus, and they thought it was hilarious that I was the one Christian in the car, and I was the one in the car who couldn't see Jesus. But I had to explain to them, like, that's not how it works. Like, just because you can see Jesus on the cow church here doesn't mean that you can see Jesus, right? And the, John chapter 9 is kind of like that as we're going to walk through it, is that here there are people who really kind of see Jesus, but they can't really see Jesus the way that they're looking at. And the Gospel of John is like that, where it's always showing how people can see Jesus for a teacher, for maybe a prophet, um, for all these different things, but there are a certain select few who really see who he actually is. And in this story, um, it's the healing of the blind man. So there's a man born blind. Jesus is going to heal him. And one of the things I want you to pay attention to is just the irony of who can actually see and who is actually blind. Not the way that we think it would often be. And we're going to see here that there are the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who might be able to see Jesus physically. Can't, they can't see him, really. And you're going to have this blind man who could not see Jesus, but yet Jesus is going to say, you've seen me here. And so a lot of the stories, especially in the Gospels, sometimes they're like parables 
or they have kind of this big aha moment in the story where, you know, Jesus is teaching through these things. And at the end, you're like, wow, like that's how it all works. Or that's who, you know, I am in the parable. As we walk through this verse, I'm going to ruin the ending for you, or I'm going to ruin the story. And I want you all to know that you, hopefully, you're the blind man, okay? So sorry, you're not going to have this big aha moment like, oh, this is the blind man the entire time. You're the blind man. So you know that from the outset. So that way, I want you to really pay attention, and I want you to look here at how many times people like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, how many times they say, we know, I know, I get it, I understand it, I see. And I want you to pay attention to the blind man, how many times he says, I don't know, I don't know, and how humble he is there. So pay attention to these things. And because this is a long story, we're just going to kind of walk through it and see so I would encourage you, open up your Bibles, follow along, because we're just going to go through this chapter here. We're going to cover the whole chapter, and I'm just going to stop. We're going to take a look at Jesus all along the way. And so meet me here in John chapter 9, and you guys should have had plenty of time to do that now. And so we'll begin in verse 1. Because we're reading the story, and you're remembering, you're the blind person, remember? Now, this is Jesus and the disciples, and it says in verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Blind from birth. And so we meet this man um, in the days before the very remarkable technology of seeing eye dogs. Um, and being blind in those days meant that there wasn't a social net. There wasn't any other way for you to make a living, for you to be sustained, other than what he was doing here, where he was most likely placed right outside of a synagogue asking for help, begging. That was essentially... All that you could do if you're a blind person in those days was sit outside of a synagogue asking for help. So every day, man probably sat there asking for help. He could do nothing about it. He saw this man, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, now the disciples have learned to ask a lot of questions, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, and as they, as they walk by, they ask Jesus. Who sinned that resulted in this man being blind? Um, and the funny thing is, like, I don't know which disciple asked this question, but I imagine Jesus would probably respond to him, or I would want to respond to him and be like, hey, you know, he's blind. He's not deaf. Um, he can hear you. Ask this question. Like, this seems kind of like a mean question, and it does have some weird implications, right? Like, did he sin in the womb? I'm not really sure how that happens. Um, the rabbis at the time actually did teach that it was possible to sin in the womb. I read about it. Honestly, don't really understand it. Like, I don't know if he kicked his mom too hard or was late on the due date. I don't really get it. But this was something that they, you know, taught. Or did his mom sin? Did his parents sin? And this is kind of the assumption that if this bad thing had happened to him, that if he has this disability, someone must have sinned. That's why this bad thing must have happened. And that was, frankly, a common assumption in those days. Someone must have done something wrong. That is why they're suffering. That's why there's an issue. Honestly, this is, this is an idea that's still very much alive today. Um, it's an idea that even a lot of Americans, even a lot of Christians might struggle to think something bad happened, must be because they did something bad, must be because I did something bad, and so on. And that, as we're going to see, is very contradictory to the way that Jesus thinks. Uh, we would probably use a word that we would borrow from the Hindus more to describe that line of thinking, the idea of karma, right? Do a bad thing, bad things happen. But this is kind of the assumption. This is something that was prevalent. In those days, and as we're going to see, this was the thought of the Pharisees, the religious leaders as well. This was kind of a common understanding. This man must have done something bad. 
must be really evil. That's why this has happened. Um, and I kind of went down a long rabbit hole this last week of seeing how different faiths respond to kind of the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. And I found a really interesting study uh, done by the LA Times right after the 2004 tsunami that took place in the Indian Ocean. If you remember in Thailand and Southeast Asia, tens of thousands of people died from the tsunami. So the LA Times, they went out and they interviewed just about every faith leader they could find. And really the, the wide range of responses of why something like this could or would happen is kind of shocking. Um, and some of the responses like aren't very surprising. Um, they talked to a Hindu leader in Southern California and he said, well, bad things only happen if people were being bad. So there must have been a lot of kind of sin in that area. They talked to an Islamic scholar at the time who said that we don't have any right to even question bad things. Like God is God. We just accept it. It's all about how you respond. You just let God do what he wants. You're not in charge. And then there was a fascinating quote. They interviewed a, a Wiccan high priestess, which I don't know what school you go to for that. But anyway, this lady, uh, her thought was that in the traditions who celebrate the divine in nature, she said this earthquake and this tidal wave is simply the case of Mother Nature stretching a kink out of her back, um, which, one, is ridiculous. Two, it's kind of hilarious. Um, but three, I think, is just kind of simplistic and honestly kind of petty. Um, to respond to tens of thousands of people dying with, uh, yeah, Mother Nature just needed to stretch. Um, Mother Nature doesn't seem like a very nice lady, if that is the case. Um, but in the end, all of these perspectives just kind of blow off pain, suffering, bad things as either, eh, it happens, people die, bad things happen, or as this person deserved it. These things happened because in some way they deserved what was coming to them. Here, we're going to see how Jesus answers this question. He says in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this has happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he said, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light. So Jesus goes on and he says, you know, this is not how this works. Like, that's not what was happening here. It's not that he served this. It's not that him or his parents sinned. It's not that he, you know, did something in the womb here. He says, he was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I just want to pause and go a little deeper into this because I know that this is a question many of us have. The question of pain, suffering, why the world is this way. It's one of the most frequently asked questions I ever get, Pastor. And first, I would just say, from a very general perspective, as we just understand what's going on here and what Jesus is saying, like first and foremost, we can address the reality that some suffering is the result of sinful actions, right? If you pick a fight with a stranger and you lose that fight, that's not God's fault. That's kind of the consequences of your action, right? That's the result of your sin. Or if, you know, you betray a friend, if you cheat on a spouse and they're angry and they're hurt, not God testing you, that's kind of the consequences of your own actions. That's an easy one to understand. We get that. Some suffering is a direct result of sinful actions. Um, but one of the things that I really think we need to remember as Christians is that all suffering is the result of sin generally. Generally. Right? That suffering in the world is too complex to just be able to say that, you know, good people get good things and bad people get good, bad things happen. We know that's not the way it works. You know, as we read through scriptures, there are plenty of people who get away with heinous sins. They have great lives. There's an entire psalm about that. 
God, why? Why do the evil get rich and have great lives? Why does this happen? Or we know that there are righteous people who suffer. There's an entire book in the Bible kind of addressing that complex issue, right? The book of Job. So one of the things that we have to remember is that this man's blindness is not the result of his direct specific sins, but just the general brokenness of the world. Um, the damage that sin has done to the world, right? N.T. Wright says that since sin has entered the world in Genesis 3, we are all experiencing what he calls the vandalism of shalom. Vandalism of shalom. That the peace, the wholeness that God made the world in has been marred, it's been painted, it's been broken by sin. One of the things that we see, especially in Genesis 3, the first mention of the gospel and of the Messiah, is that one of the main things the Messiah will do is crush the head of the serpent, right? Because the serpent was responsible for the temptation there in the garden here. And so as we go through the Old Testament, you see that theme really developed of the Messiah coming back, God coming back to essentially remake the fix undo vandalism that sin caused in our world. So as you go through the Old Testament, that's one of the things you see over and over again, is that the Messiah would heal the brokenhearted. He would heal blindness. That's one of the things Isaiah talked about all throughout. And the prophets say, this is one of the things the Messiah is going to do, because blindness, brokenness, cancer, disease, all of that is the result in vandalizing God's good earth, essentially. So that's kind of the general answer, that sin has done a work in the world. One of the reasons to see the suffering here, right? Just generally, you know, cancer is the result of cancer cells or cells rebelling against our body, right? In rebellion here. But then especially what Jesus says here, more specifically, because these guys aren't asking a general question, why do bad things happen? They're asking this man right here. And what Jesus says is that sin and suffering is an opportunity for Jesus to display his glory, right? That his works would be on display. Born blind so that the works of God would be displayed in him. Right? That this is an opportunity for healing. The world is this way. There's darkness. He has come to be the light. Light is to break out, show a different but This isn't just the way you have to accept the way things are. And this isn't something to point fingers at. These people are suffering. This is an opportunity for Jesus to crush the head of the serpent, undo what has been done. Every sin, every single bit of suffering is one of those opportunities. Works of God are displayed. But Jesus answers here. Big, complicated question. Then he goes on, verse 6. After saying this, this is one of the most famous parts of this story, where Jesus spit on the ground and he made some mud with his saliva. And he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went, and he washed, and he came home. Right? This is an amazing story, very famous one. Um, if you read 10 different commentaries on this story, you're going to get 10 different emphases on what exactly is happening here. Um, so I don't have time to get into all the different implications here. But just a few weird things. First off is we know that Jesus could have just given him sight, right? did that all the time. Touched people, said it. But what he's doing here, I think, is just showing how much more beautiful, how much more hopeful this healing is. Um, because essentially what Jesus is doing here in making his little mud pies, Jesus is recreating this man's eyes. 
recreating the suffering this man has experienced, right? That he was born into a world vandalized by sin, a world full of suffering, a world full of chaos. And Jesus is taking the raw material the world is made of, right? The dust of the earth here. And in a very Genesis chapter 2 kind of way, recreating man's eyes, right? We were created from the dust of the earth. God breathed into it. Essentially, Jesus is doing that same thing here. He grabs the dust, fits in it, which has a lot of maybe weird implications. You can study that in your own time. It's fascinating. Um, fits in it, makes little mud things. I imagine he made like a sweet pair of sunglasses out of it. And then he puts it on his eyes. He puts it on his eyes. I imagine this is just a great example to us to remember that sometimes Jesus' healing is a little messier than we had hoped for. <laughs> and it's a little more inconvenient. Because most likely this man had to be led to the synagogue here. Now he's going to have to be led to the pool. That's kind of annoying. He, again, doesn't have a seeing eye dog. He's got to go to the pool, wash, and then he's got to come back. But what happened is that he came home seeing, right? Came home seeing. Came back healed. And in verse 8, we continue on. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. I think this is just kind of a hilarious part of the story. But not only does he come home seeing, he essentially comes home completely transformed. Completely transformed. And there's a debate in the neighborhood if this is the same guy or not. And he's having to convince them. This is me. This is me. Right? Because one thing, I think it's really fascinating that they are more likely to believe that there could be a doppelganger of their friend who's posing to be him than that God could actually heal. Like, that seems a little more unlikely, but they seem to lean into that. Um, but also, one of the things that could be happening here is when Jesus healed, Jesus recreated this man's eyes. I mean, he transformed the whole person. So we don't know if he looked differently, but this essentially is Jesus' work that when he heals us, we know he's doing so much more. Just a little bit of pain. What Paul calls when we when we come to faith, he says that we are a new creation. Completely new. New creation. He recreates his people. We believe in him. And I've seen Jesus do this. I've seen him do it in many of your lives as well. Here, this is what happened, and his friends don't even think it's him. How can this be possible? Verse 10, they question him. How then were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus. Made some mud and he put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and to wash. And so I went and washed and I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said, right? He's like, I don't know. I was blind five minutes ago. Why are you asking me? Right? And this is the first of several interrogations this guy's going to go through because in verse 13, then they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. So now he has a new name. He's the guy who used to be blind. Good for him. Level up. And now the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Okay, that might be a problem for the Pharisees. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. The guy tells him, mud. Right? He put mud in my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, the man replied. He's a prophet. So the Pharisees here, they're hung up on the Sabbath. They're hung up on the fact that Jesus 
broke the Sabbath by making this cool little pair of mud sunglasses. Um, and one of the things you see, especially in John, is Jesus repeatedly healing on the Sabbath. I'm sure he healed on like Tuesdays and Wednesdays as well. But you see him over and over again healing on the Sabbath. And one of the thoughts is that John is including specifically the times when he healed on the Sabbath because that's when, that's when the chaos happened. That's when the, the religious leaders really got upset. They really got upset. Um, but again, there's kind of the shocking irony of the Pharisees being unable to really see because they're mad about Jesus healing, restoring this man's sight on the Sabbath. Well, they didn't see what the Sabbath was used for to begin with, right? Because the Sabbath and the purpose of it is, of course, not just rest, but restoration, right? So it's for rest. And what Jesus is doing, I mean, you can't do restoration without rest, right? The Sabbath is for rest here. And what Jesus is doing is he's showing that it's even bigger than that. It's not just so that you can take a nap or have wine in the bathtub. Like, that's not what rest is. Jesus is pointing out that what people truly need is restoration. They need to be restored here. And I'm sure many of you know as, as you go through your busy lives, school, work, everything you've got going on, that as you seek rest, like not enough naps, not enough days off, and really give it to you. Jesus is making clear, where does this rest come from? Where does this rest come from? I have it. They can't see that. They can't see that. So the irony is they can't seem to see the way anything should be. They don't even understand the Sabbath. They don't understand how God works. They don't understand suffering and pain in the world. They can't see. And one commentator, he says it this way, and I think it's a good way to look at it, that this story is full of gospel irony. He who sees for the first time in his life reveals the longtime blindness of the Pharisees. They only see the law, but the blind man sees the Messiah, to whom the law points. In their hubris, the Pharisees can only boast about Moses. In his humility, the healed man only boasts about Jesus. The Pharisees charge the healed man for walking in darkness of sin, but he sees the light of the world. The son who made the sun and everything else. The Pharisees excommunicated him from life of the temple. There's a spoiler alert for you. Jesus made him a living stone in the only true and lasting temple. Christ himself. So if you haven't picked up on the theme yet of this story, we're about halfway through here. There is this, this idea that's being played with here. Who is blind? Actually, what does it actually mean? For who he is. Because the Pharisees at this point, they can't seem to see what Jesus has done here. Right? All they see is the system they've built, their power. They see their own malice, their own hatred for him. They're hung up on the fact that he gave sight to a blind man on the Sabbath. So in verse 18, they didn't like this guy's testimony. So it says they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one that you say was born blind? How can it be now that he sees? And for a long time, I always thought of this man as, I don't know, being like middle-aged. But a lot of people point out that it's possible he was like a teenager at this time, which is why they called his parents. Um, he tells a story. Pharisees didn't believe it, so they bring the parents in. And here's the parents' response. Because we know our son. We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age, right? He can speak for himself. 
So his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, him. So this is, they're answering like it's a bit of a hostage situation here, right? They're very careful what they would admit to. And I would just say right off the bat, like not great uh, parenting here. They don't really rush to defend their kid. Like what you want to see is, God, this is our son. Like he's been suffering his whole life with blindness. We've been suffering with him. And now we're so happy that he can see. Instead, they're like, ask him. Like he's at least 13, so he can talk to you in court. So he'll do fine in court by himself, right? Go for it. And what they were afraid of was they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. Put out of the synagogue. Um, And this didn't just have religious significance, right? This didn't just mean they couldn't go to church on Sunday, which, you know, they weren't like Americans back then who switched churches every three years. You know, you get a new church, like you get a new girlfriend every few years, right? They had no other place to worship. So you never, you don't leave a synagogue. You are stuck there, right? And it's not only where you worship, it's also where city life took place. So if you're put out of the synagogue, you lose your job, lose your social status, like you would have to move. You just can't live in this town anymore. And moving in those days was also a lot harder than it is for us. So the stakes were high for them. They were afraid. Not worth it. No questions, please. Just ask him. Just put the burden. They throw their son essentially under the bus to the Pharisees here. Because this is a real threat Pharisees have put on them. So the second time in verse 24. They summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. So the pressure that they're putting on him is saying, we know Jesus couldn't have done this. He's a sinner. Right? Forget about this guy. Say God did it. Stop talking about Jesus. This guy, he's got guts. So in verse 25, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Some of the grammar in this sentence actually draws our attention kind of to him saying, I was blind, now I see. Almost to say, you see what has happened? Blind guy, now I can see. Kind of putting it on them, which is why they're going to get upset. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you, you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Right, so at this point, he's trolling the Pharisees, and it's great. He's saying, like, why are you so obsessed with him? What's your deal? I told you. It was mud. But what they're doing, they're just trying to tear his testimony apart, right? They're not actually speaking the truth. He knows that. He's poking holes in that, saying, you're not actually trying to figure it out. You are just trying to tear him apart. And so verse 28, their pettiness continues. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from, right? Essentially saying, we have everything Moses wrote down. We don't know this guy. Don't trust him. Verse 30, the man answered, Now that is remarkable. (laughs) He says, You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind, which is true. In the Old Testament, there was sight restored. There was never someone born blind to be able to that. 
guy seems to know the Old Testament. <clears throat> he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he's saying, he's a prophet. He's someone who can perform miracles, and you don't know about him? Interesting. Because that means the Pharisees are wrong in some way, <clears throat> right? And he's using their own logic against them. They say, we know he's a sinner. Well, if he's a sinner, he just healed me. And your definition of sin might be wrong. But if he's not a sinner, and he did heal me, then there was a prophet walking around, and you didn't even know it. You missed it. You can't even see it. It would have been really offensive to them, because that was the purpose of the Pharisees. They were going to find Messiah. Here he is. Can't find him. Right? What he is hinting at here is maybe you are blind. Maybe you are missing the miracle because of your technicality. In verse 34, <clears throat> they continue on with their pettiness. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? They threw him out. Right? So you can see that they kind of believe in that karmic reality of sin. Right? That the picture there is that he was in like a sinful womb. Right? He's just sitting in the tea there. It was all just sin. He was born this way because of sin. And what you can see is they're just rejecting any way that they can, by any means possible. Don't want to have to deal with the fact they're blind. The fact that they can't see how sin really works, they can't see that the Messiah is born here. So they kicked him out. They threw him out of the synagogue. All of those consequences we just talked about are now reality for him. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe the Son of Man? Okay, so Jesus heard he was thrown out, and he goes and he finds him. Now, this doesn't take an in-depth look at the Greek to figure out what happened. Like, before you find something, what are you doing? They're looking, right? Seeking, searching. And so Jesus here, like we can see between the lines here, Jesus was searching, looking for this man. He was kicked out. He heard about it. Jesus goes to find him. And we might just cruise past this. have to recognize we gather around the name of God after Jesus. Right? And I think to be made in the image of that God is to have the same passion after people in a way. Jesus just straight up asks him, you believe in the Son of Man? This man, verse 36, says, who is he, sir? Know who Jesus is. Tell me that I may believe in him. So, one of the things that I think we have to recognize here is this man was not, not a believer. And I've heard it said there are certain circles of Christianity that do say that there's no healing apart from faith in Jesus. That, you know, healing only comes once you believe. And this is your prescription right now to pray for everyone in your life to receive healing regardless of where they stand. Okay? This man was healed. doesn't even know who the Son of Man. Like Jesus is talking to him. doesn't even know who he is. Right? I mean, how often have we had the thought, there's a friend, there's a family member who's really struggling going through something, and we just think, man, I just wish that they would come to faith, or that something miraculous could take place in their life. As I would say, we don't even want that kind of thinking. We don't even want like the residue of that on our lives. Because here we see that we should pray with boldness, with expectancy, for God to move on the lives of all the people around us, all the people. And especially like with this man, that might actually be like the primary thing that shows them 
that Jesus is real, that he is pursuing them. This would be the thing that would move them to faith. So let this be your instruction right here. Pray for those in your life. They don't believe yet. They're going through things. Jesus would show up in a real way. He would heal. He would show up in a physical way in their life. That might be the thing that would move them to faith. And we have a great example of what Jesus does here. Where he flat out asks the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Right? Do you believe? In God. This is one of the things that Heather's maid of honor shared last night. Is she was very intimidated by Heather, who just walked right up to her and said, Are you a believer? Like their first time meeting. And sometimes I think we get, not all of us have Heather's personality, um, but sometimes we think, like, Oh, I'm too afraid to like ask those questions, or maybe the person will be offended, or they'll be too freaked out if we start those conversations about faith right away. Jesus here straight up asks them, Believe in the Son. And I think. Oftentimes, we can be a people who are so afraid, maybe by a person taking offense or by their response, that we don't even ask the question, don't even give the invitation. I would say that sometimes people need this invitation. Because the man didn't know who he was. Jesus gave that invitation. Do you believe? He's like, well, I would if I knew who he was. I think sometimes people need that invitation. Sometimes people. I was even convicted this last week. Sometimes people just need the invitation to like fill the empty chairs. Or I had someone who's pretty close to me in my life here in town, um, and I was just talking to them about how things are going in our lives, and and he asked me like, would it be okay if I like came to your church one week, or like would that be weird for me to be there? And let that be funny for a second, because it should also kind of break our hearts that the assumption of most people is that they're not always invited. Right? They don't want to have like the audacity or the to say, like, yeah, I kind of go anywhere. And in a city, especially like Rapid, where sometimes it can be really hard to break into people's social lives, get involved, I think we have to make those invitations, make those requests. Don't just expect that people can find the information on the website. Like, if they have theology questions, they can Google it. There's plenty of resources. Like, no, 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 no. We have the task, we have the responsibility. Make those invitations, start those conversations. Maybe like Jesus, just straight up the question. Ask the question, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in God? Don't assume that they're just on their own. I think leave no doubt. Send those invitations. Because he said, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe. And Jesus says, this is like a big reveal here, you have seen him. In fact, the one speaking to you. And I don't think I have to point out the shocking nature of Jesus saying to a man formerly born blind that you have seen him, past tense. This is only a second time being near Jesus, first time he could actually see. Seen him before. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Then Jesus said, here's our statement. For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Judgment came into the world. And we know that in our vernacular, judgment's always a bad thing for us. We don't like that word. Um, But judgment just means to differentiate. Judge between good and bad, between light and dark, between blue and purple, which is a big fight in our household. I often think things are blue or purple. My wife sees it differently, right? We're judging differently in that sense. But what he's saying here is that's what he came to do. He came to kind of turn the lights on, 
show who can see show what is light is dark who loves the dark so much they'd rather sit in that who is actually seeking after the light that's his judgment his judgment it does result in separation but his judgment results in sight to the blind that those who say yeah i can't see hi i'm not sure i'm humble i don't know i need help those people receive sight people with talked about that last week and keller said that the the best thing that we can have is need many of us don't have need it's all we have to do is come before god this is a this is a consistent theme all throughout jesus work is him showing that he's the one who's come to solve our problems he's the one who's come to heal he's the one who's come to lead job is to humbly come before him receiving right recognizing blindness recognizing that every day we would recognize our need. That before God, I can't see. Help me. Help me. A lot of blindness. Here come real blind people in the story. Verse forty. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this. They asked, "What? Are we blind too?" They're starting to pick up. He's not talking about physical sight. And Jesus said. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So Jesus goes, you decide. Can you see or not? Do you see me clearly? Checking me? Saying, if you understand everything, you're responsible for that. If you're asking for my help, I'll give you help. Right? But you first will need to admit you can't see if you've been in darkness. Obviously, we know because of the hardness of their hearts that they, they won't admit that. They're like, no, we see everything clearly. We know what the Messiah looks like. We know what sin's about. We know what Sabbath is about. You're not him, guy. Here, they're unable to admit. They're unable to admit their guilt. They're unable to admit their blindness. They've got it all figured out. They don't need help here. It was Charles Spurgeon that this, I think, very well what is happening here. That it is not our littleness that hinders Christ our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. The invitation here is don't try strong enough. Don't try to just be self-sufficient enough. Don't pretend that you see, that you can do it. Really, you can't. Jesus is looking for is not someone who is big, smart, and has it all figured out. He doesn't look at us like that not smart enough he's not strong enough he's no he's who ask he's not looking for people who are owed to sin and don't have any of that in our life he's looking for people who even though they sin quick to repent quick to ask help for them this the story here um it's got everything it's got humor it's it's awesome it's kind of a tearjerker at the end here it's got like really good villains but essentially i think the question posed to us at the end here is you know, where have we seen blindness in our life? Like, what kind of blindness struggle with? I think all of us have to pause and remember, okay, we're the blind guy. Remember? Establish that. Sorry to ruin your aha moment here. We're the blind person. Now, what, what blind spots might we have? Because just looking from the story here, obvious blind spot that the Pharisees have is legalism, right? Legalism. 
This is really one of the big things that the text focuses on because they were so hung up on the Sabbath. They were so hung up on their ideas of sin and the result of that. But the places in which the Bible was pretty silent, man, they couldn't stop talking about it. They couldn't stop forming an opinion on things they shouldn't have been formed. One of the big things that the Pharisees were very guilty of is that if God drew the line here, here is sin, then they said, we don't want people to even get close to that, so we're going to draw the line way over here. But they did. They just put so many obstacles, so many undue burdens on people that in order for people to get to Jesus, it was impossible. In order for them to see Jesus, it was impossible because they had this filter, they had this lens, what a sinner looked like, what a prophet looked like, wasn't a good lens. It was a lens born of legalism. Born out of legalism. And so I think we have to take a step back. We have to see what rules, what preferences are we elevating up to the point of biblical principle? What things have we just decided? This is what saved people look like, and this is what the others blind that legalism from. And I would say we wrap up here. Dip down. The last one, which is they were blinded by legalism. We might also be blinded at times by skepticism. Right? And skepticism, I would say, is a good thing at times. It's a good thing to ask questions. It's a good thing often to be skeptical of me. Be skeptical of your leaders and just ask them if that really is what the scripture says. But when it comes to skepticism of God, of the scriptures, this is where sometimes we can become blinded by it, right? And it's often been said, I don't know who first said it, but that skepticism is a good place for vacation, not a good place to build your house, right? That good at times, but if you're constantly living with the idea that everyone's lying to you, everyone is wrong, we can't really believe anything, we can't believe any of the words translated by this because, you know, humans are fallen and this and that. You probably like paid your Verizon bill this week, and that was a human telling you that, hey, this is how much you owe. And you kind of just agreed, yeah, you're right, that's how much I owe, and I'll pay it. And so we have skepticism towards everything, everyone. Sometimes that causes the blindness. Right? We want to be open to those tough questions, and we don't want to avoid topics that might be difficult, but we can't live. That's one of the things that we see the Pharisees or even just the people around. They're like, this can't be the guy. That can't feel in this way. Must be somebody impersonating a blind guy because that's something no one's ever done. Couldn't see. So we have to just come. We're God in this. Jesus has said, I came for judgment. I came to differentiate. Who can see? Who can't see? One who can see is the one who admits, I can't see. I need you. So now we continue in worship. Would you please pray with me? As we just come before God and we just ask Him, we just we need you so much. Please open our eyes. So Jesus, we come before you. We just thank you for opening our, our eyes to see you, but we still just recognize all the different blind spots in our lives. Recognize the the lenses, the obstacles that we put up in front of you so that it makes it hard for you. God, we, we're warned by this example here in John chapter 9 of the way that the Pharisees did this. We just want to learn not to bring those obstacles on ourselves, which would drive us away. But 
So we just ask that you would give us the humility to admit that. Um, but first and foremost, we just thank you for helping us. We ask that everyone in this room have their eyes open, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds. God, there are names, there are faces that have, have come to our minds during this time as well. But we ask that you would do a work in their lives, that you and your power open the eyes of those who can't see, that you would show that your judgment is not something to be afraid of, it's not something to run from, it's not something to hide from. It's when we come to you and we admit our need to fulfill all those needs. For those of us who have experienced that in our lives, you empower us and strengthen us and give us the courage. Like this man shared his story, his testimony. He shared who you are. Would you empower us to do that in our lives as well? So Jesus, we turn to you now in praise. In your holy name that we pray. Amen. We 